Good morning, friends. My name is Tom Hallman. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship, and I am really excited to bring God's word to you this morning. So please turn with me, if you would, to Paul's second letter to Timothy, which if you have a church Bible that looks like this, it's page 578. Might be a little hard to find. It's not actually written up there, but you can find 579. And just go on the other side. Pro tip. (laughs) At least one person is tracking with me so far this morning. For a few weeks now, we have been looking at this letter of 2 Timothy, and we've, uh, we've seen that the Apostle Paul has written to his protege Timothy, who is serving as the pastor of the Christian church at Ephesus. And the dominant theme of this letter has been that Timothy is to guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that the gospel, that this, this message that fallen, sinful, and spiritually hopeless humanity has been rescued by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, uh, that is the gospel, this gospel, and Paul knows that it's going to constantly come under attack from enemies and be distorted by false teachers and, and be misunderstood by the very people who so desperately need to hear it. So Timothy must guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so last week, as we examined the first half of chapter 2, Paul reminded Timothy that as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, he must not get involved in civilian affairs. And like a champion athlete, he's got to know and follow the rules. And like a hard-working farmer, he will reap the rewards of his efforts. And Paul is going to continue on a similar train of thought this week, because what do good soldiers and champion athletes and hardworking farmers all have in common? Focus, passionate, unwavering focus. Without such focus, you might be a soldier, but not a very good one. Or you might be an athlete, but you won't become a champion. Or you might be a farmer but not a hard-working one. Your crops will fail. So Timothy's job was to focus intensely on the gospel of Jesus Christ and to pass on that passionate focus to others who would then likewise share in this passionate dedication, this focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in today's text, Paul will show Timothy how this passionate focus on the gospel is the solution to some of the biggest troubles that Timothy is having in his church. And see, in particular, there are are many quarrels, fights taking place in this church. There's arguments about words and meaningless talk and foolish controversies. And this has been going on for a while. And in the midst of all of this controversy, all these fights and quarrels, the gospel message is being drowned out. The very thing that Timothy needs to guard is is falling into the background. So that's what Paul wants us to see. That's what Paul wants Timothy to see. And Paul is going to show Timothy and us that the solution to all those quarrels about words is not simply to shout louder than all of your opponents. Rather, the solution is the gospel itself, which Paul will model for us himself. So, 
Let's look at the first section on your outline and the first section of our text. We're going to focus on verses 14 through 18 today, but I want to back up a little bit. Let's start reading in your Bibles at at chapter 2, verse 8. Paul's words to Timothy and to us. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Verse 14. Remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Let's pause there. Paul begins this section of his letter by reminding Timothy of something. What is it? Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. If Timothy is to focus on the gospel, the first thing he needs to do is remember this gospel. Remember Jesus Christ and all that he did and all that he accomplished. Remember it when things are easy and when things are hard. Keep it as your focus and guard it well. That's where Paul starts his thought here. But now in verse 14, Paul expands it. He challenges Timothy to remind the Ephesian church of all these things. Don't just think about it yourself, Timothy. Tell everyone about it. And for the same reason, because as as Peter pointed out last week on this section, how easily we all forget. We get distracted. We don't remember. We need this constant reminder. Case in point, Paul applies this lesson to the biggest problem or one of the biggest problems going on in this church. He, He adds... In verse 14, Timothy must charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Why? What's the big deal? What's the problem here? What's the big deal about words? The problem, Paul says, is that unlike the gospel, which brings life and joy, Paul says in verse 14 that these words about which they're quarreling do no good and only ruin the hearers. In other words, the, the, the range of benefit from these words, goes from useless to destructive. And that's just the beginning. Paul also says in verse 16 that such irreverent babble, or you could likewise say disrespectful nonsense, leads to ever-increasing levels of ungodliness. Yikes! And in verse 17, Paul points out that this talk will spread like gangrene. Now, thankfully... Many of us in this room have probably never encountered gangrene. Because if you did, as the Ephesians very much probably would have, you'd be horrified at Paul's words here, at this this idea. 
Because gangrene is the death of skin tissue that often affects extremities like fingers and toes. And, uh, and it results in really nasty skin discoloration and pain and, uh, uh, oh, and a putrid smell. It's just this horrible disease. And unless it's treated quickly, it will travel up your arm and it will go up your leg. And the only solution in many of these cases is amputation. Now, today, modern medicine can do much to help if it's caught early enough. So don't go home and have nightmares about gangrene tonight. But the Ephesian church didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have a way of solving this. So if you took up your boot one day and your toes are all black, then that meant you're going to go to the doctor and he is going to lop off your foot. That was your only hope of getting rid of it. Gangrene was something to be feared and hated. And as soon as it was discovered anywhere, you do everything possible to lop it off at the source before it spreads. You'd be extremely focused on that. So do you see what this ungodly speech is like, according to Paul? It serves no purpose. It destroys those who hear it. It's disrespectful. It makes no sense. It leads people away from God, and it spreads spreads pain and a terrible stench wherever it goes. Yet, despite all that, despite all those horrible effects, this problem with words has been going on at Ephesus, in this church, for a very long time. If you go back and read Paul's first letter to Timothy, you'll see these same problems. And here we are in his second letter. (laughs) Why is that? What's going on? Well, Paul doesn't tell us explicitly, but we may have a clue in that Paul names two guys in verse 17 who are propagating the problem, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Paul implies that there are more than just these two. He says among them, but he singles these guys out for a reason. And one of these names is frustratingly unsurprising. Because back in Paul's first letter to Timothy, back in chapter 1 of that letter, we learn that Hymenaeus, along with another man named Alexander, had rejected the faith and a good conscience and had made a shipwreck of their faith. So in response, Paul had turned these men over to Satan. That's what he says. We turn them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So Hymenaeus has been a problem for some time. And it's unclear why that still is. It may be that that he did appear to learn not to blaspheme. and, And so he was welcomed back into the church, but has since changed his attitude, his, his heart has, has turned sour again, and, and he's saying these same things. Or, perhaps more likely, he's still outside the church, but because of his pre-existing relationships with, with individuals in the church, he still has their ear, and he just keeps spreading these words and causing fights and quarrels among the church. And so, regardless of, of which of those scenarios it is, or maybe another one, Hymenaeus and his new sidekick Philetus are the source of a lot of these troubles. So, what are these men up to? What what are they saying exactly that's causing such problems? According to verse 18, these men are claiming that the resurrection has already happened, and that is upsetting the faith of some church members. Now, the problem here is not that they're saying that the resurrection of Jesus 
already happened. That's, that's a historical fact. Paul is completely on board with that. That's, that's the foundation of our faith, not something that would upset our faith. No, rather, Hymenaeus and Philetus are claiming that the resurrection of man has already taken place. They were saying that, hey, Ephesian church, if you're sitting here right now and you're in this church, you've missed the boat. Christ has already returned, and sorry, he forgot you. That's what they're saying. And so the, the, you're on your own. There is no coming hope in the future. This is it. Yeah, that, that, would, that would certainly be upsetting to some people's faith, you would think. And in the next verses, Paul is going to address that very issue. But before we go there, let's first observe one strong contrast Paul draws to the destructive quarreling of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Look at, uh, this is, yeah, this is verse uh, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What Paul is saying is, Timothy, instead of engaging in the stuff they're engaging in, if you want to win these wars of words, you must rightly handle the word of truth. That is the truth of the scriptures. And by doing so, Timothy, you'll present yourself as an approved worker. In other words, Timothy needs to focus on handling these words rightly. He needs to focus on the very gospel that he's supposed to be guarding. He must focus on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he will live out his faith in such a way that his church will see something far more attractive and far more compelling than anything that Hymenaeus and Philetus have to offer. So, how might you and I apply this today? What would it look like for us to rightly handle the word of truth? What would it look like for us to handle our words in this right way to be approved workers? Well, here's the big question. How do you use your words? Are they useless and destructive? Or are they rightly handled and attractive? For example, when you feel wronged or disappointed, do you choose to focus on the grace and love of Christ that you've already freely received? Or do you vent your frustrations as though the resurrection of man has already happened and you're functionally on your own? There's no one looking out for you. There's no one coming to the rescue. Would others watching you and listening to you say in response, this person claims to be a Christian, but they don't sound any different than anyone else. Why would I want their Christ? Or might they say, wow, you respond to hardship and difficulty and trials which with such hope, such confidence. You, you speak as though Jesus Christ cared about you personally and was here actively changing the world to help you, even in the midst of extreme pain. I want that kind of hope. I want that kind of relationship. I want that kind of Savior. How do I meet him? Let me tell you, the difference in impact between those two attitudes cannot be overstated. Because for, for fully half of my life, I rejected Jesus because I could not discern differences in how the Christians around me acted or spoke. 
and I saw nothing attractive, attractive about their lives or their Savior, and so my only interest in them was quarreling. And I can't tell you how many useless, destructive, pointless quarrels I had with Christians. Both they and I wasted a lot of time and energy and words in these quarrels. But, by God's grace, half my life ago, I encountered Christians who took Paul's words here seriously, who focused on the gospel, who rightly handled the word of truth, who who believed the scriptures over what their circumstances and their emotions told them was true. Those Christians truly astounded me, and I didn't know what to do with them. I couldn't argue with them. I mean, I could bring up controversies, I, but, but they'd respond with love and patience and thoughtful questions and a whole lot of scripture. And before I knew it, I was following them around like a puppy dog. And I still am, joyfully. Where else would I go? They had the words of eternal life. They were focused on the gospel. And because of their example, because of their words, because of their teaching, because of their care and attitude, now I focus on the gospel too. Now you might be wondering what that focus looks like in practice. Thankfully, we don't have to wonder because Paul is graciously going to provide us with a case study. That's the next point on your outline and the next verses we're going to read. Uh, let me start in verse 17 just to give us a little bit of context again so we can remember where Paul is starting with in this argument. About halfway through verse 17. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, the specific problem here that Paul is addressing and that Timothy would be well aware of is that Hymenaeus and Philetus are spreading a gangrenous talk that the resurrection of man has already happened. If that were true, there would be two, at least two, major implications of that. The first would be, as we already mentioned, that Jesus has forgotten us. We thought we were his, but we were, we were wrong. The shepherd has abandoned his flock. That would be the first implication. The second would be that we have no future hope. This life is all we have, so we might as well live it however we want. And so the question that Hymenaeus and Philetus are functionally requiring us to ask is, is that true? <laughs> Some of you are shaking your heads. That's, that's the right answer. Good. No, I, I agree with you. That is not the case. But how do we know that? How do we know it's not true? Because it's not enough to say, well, I don't like that, so it's not true. That's insane. That's insanity at best. And it's not enough to say, well, I heard Tim Keller say, or my dad says. That's naive. 
That's that's unless you're like six years old, then that's fine. But otherwise, you need to have something more foundational than that. If that's your foundation, just what someone told you or what you think, then you're going to have a whole lot of trouble once you meet a Hymenaeus or a Philetus in real life. And they're going to bowl you over. That's what's happening in, in this church. These guys are going to poke at your shaky foundation. They're going to smell your uncertainty. And within a very short time, you're going to find yourself waist deep in quarrels about words. I promise you that. It will happen. I I was these guys. One of my favorite pastimes is getting into these kinds of discussions with Christians. Because the technique is really simple. You don't have to convince anyone of anything. You don't, you don't have to win the argument. You just got to introduce doubt. You don't have to win. You just have to make sure they lose. That's what these quarrels do. This is why it's destructive and useless. And that's the particularly vile nature of gangrenous words. You just need a little infection, and then it spreads, and it spreads, and it spreads. So, back to my question. How do we know that the resurrection of man hasn't already happened? How do we make our case while avoiding meaningless quarrels that simply boil down to someone's opinion? Paul models it for us right here by going straight to the word of God. Listen up, Hymenaeus, Paul says. You say that the Lord has forgotten us, but listen to God's word in Numbers 16.5. The Lord knows who are his. And then Paul says, do you hear me, Philetus? None of us who are his could possibly be lost or forgotten. This is our firm foundation. We need not be shaken and our faith need not be upset. We have nothing to worry about here. In this way, in this example, Paul wields the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, like a master warrior, lopping off these gangrenous men in one fell swoop. Listen, Paul may be right now at the end of his life a frail old man in a Roman prison. But don't be deceived. Spiritually, this guy is absolutely ripped. He is, is a spiritual gladiator. But Paul's not even done. Because many in this church have been led into more and more ungodliness. And so Paul draws back his sword and strikes again. Okay? He says... Uh, another quote from the scriptures, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Do you see why he says that? Hymenaeus and Philetus, okay, they were saying the resurrection has already happened. God left you behind. So we no longer need to fight sin. Sure, sure, let's enjoy being Christians, but let's stop fighting with the Ephesian culture around us. Let's just embrace it. It's causing all kinds of strife. We can have both. Stop being so uptight about godliness, guys. Come on. Jesus doesn't care. He's he's left. We're on our own. But Paul shuts all that down. He says, your arguments are foundationless, Hymenaeus. Ours are based on the word of God, though. We have one foundation with two parts. The first part is that the Lord knows who are his. The second is this. Since we are his, we must depart from iniquity. We must leave sin behind, not embrace it. And then Paul illustrates that truth using the analogy of a house. The, the Ephesians were doing some things as Christ promoted and some things as the Ephesian culture promoted. And so they're like a house with some honorable vessels and some dishonorable vessels. Hymenaeus and Philetus are, are like 
Who cares? Just fill up the house. Just some honorable, some dishonorable. doesn't matter. You have stuff in your house. That's great. That's all you need. Just get stuff. But Paul says, if you want the house and if, to be truly useful to the master, then, then you need to be ready for every good work. You need to get rid of all that dishonorable stuff. You need to be a, me- a vessel for honorable use. In other words, friends, just as Paul wrote to Timothy last week regarding soldiers and athletes and farmers, so he is ready again with the same point. Focus. Passionately, obsessively, compulsively, focus. Only the honorable. Only the holy. Only for Jesus. Do you see how masterfully Paul accomplishes his purposes here in this case study? It's Glorious. Not only does he model rightly handling the word of God to shut down the destructive arguments of Hymenaeus and Philetus, but he calls Timothy and all of us to focus. Focus on the word of truth. Focus on Christ's sure grip on us. Focus on the gospel that you, Timothy, are guarding. And so Paul has now set us up really well for his final argument today. The next word he uses is so. That is, therefore, as a result, because of all of this, we need to do something. What is it? Well, let's look together at verses 22 through 26, where Paul calls us to run. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see the words Paul used here to describe what Timothy and all of us are to do as a result of our focus? Verse 22. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. What is fleeing? Fleeing is not casually striding. It's not speed walking. It's not jogging. Fleeing is what you do when the room is on fire or when someone's trying to mug you. That's fleeing. Fleeing is what you do when there's incredible danger and your life is at stake. And and what is pursuing? Pursuing is what you do when you really, really, really want to get something. And so uh, you know, police officers pursue criminals to bring them to justice, right? And, uh, and, and college students pursue uh, a career so they can get their dream job. And I pursue my wife because I cannot imagine a life without her. That's what pursuit looks like. And, and Paul uses both of these words, flee and pursue, because both words imp- imply incredible focus in our efforts. When you flee, all you can think about is getting out of there. And when you pursue, all you can think about is that thing that's in your sights and you're going to get them. So, 
What are we to avoid? What are we to flee from? Youthful passions. Now, that's a broad phrase, but here, Paul, I believe, is especially referring to verse 23, where he says, have nothing to do with, avoid, foolish, ignorant controversies. Flee the meaningless arguments of these men, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Get out of there. Run away. And what are we to pursue instead? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. These are the character qualities of those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. These are the fruit on display in the lives of those who remain truly focused on Jesus. Moreover, look at verse 24. 24, Paul says, That the Lord's servant, that is, the one focused on doing the Lord's will, must not be quarrelsome, but instead must be kind to everyone. That means the good guys and the bad guys, everyone. He needs to be able to teach God's word, just like Paul himself modeled in this, in this text. He's got to correct, I'm sorry, uh, patiently endure evil, which will come from every direction imaginable, by the way, and he needs to correct his opponents, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, with gentleness. Isn't this remarkable? We should wonder if spiritual gladiator Paul can wield the broadsword of the Spirit masterfully, why wouldn't he just use that sword to utterly destroy his enemies? Why be kind? Why why be gentle? Why on earth would you patiently endure evil? Why put up with Hymenaeus and Philetus at all? Paul, you've got a sword. You know how to use it. What kind of warrior holds a sword while also saying, be kind to everyone, be gentle to your opponents? That sounds insane. I'll tell you why. The kind of warrior who does such things is the kind of warrior who models his life after the life of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, friends, you'll recognize this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. He has absolute sovereign authority over every planet, over every person, over every particle. And had he so chosen, he could have instantly crushed every single one of us because every single one of us has fallen terribly, horrifically short of the glory of God. We are not innocent children trying to understand him. We Biblically, are overt rebels shaking our fists at him and daring him to try to stop us while we engage in all manner of youthful passions. That's insane. That's absolutely nuts. We're, we're stark raving mad to think we could stand against such power. Like we could provoke him endlessly without consequence. Yet we did it anyway. And we so often continue. To do it anyway. Yet, despite that, despite his perfectly and completely knowing our every rebellious, sinful, 
prideful thought and motive in our, in our completely wicked, sin-saturated hearts, Jesus Christ was gentle. He was kind to everyone. And to say that Jesus Christ patiently endured evil would be the most tremendous understatement that someone could possibly make. Because, you know, though he had never once done a single thing wrong, he permitted the likes of us to nail him to a Roman cross where he hung there dying. And we mocked him and we spat on him. And all that after he'd spent his entire life but doing nothing but showing kindness to everyone, teaching all of us the ways of God and correcting even his opponents with far, far more gentleness than they ever possibly deserved. Friends, do you see why Paul describes the Lord's servant the way he does? It's because the Lord's servant must look like the Lord himself. And here's the purpose. Here's why. Verse 25. God may perhaps grant his opponents repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The reason the Lord's servant must look like the Lord himself is because the Lord's mission is not yet complete. There are still more opponents out there that we need to bring in. And perhaps, maybe, you're sitting here today and you're one of them. Perhaps you're here right now thinking, my life is a mess. Nothing makes sense. Everything I've tried has failed. I'm not even sure why I came here this morning. I'm not even sure I know what I'm looking for. But I have nowhere else to go. If that's you, friend, then I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is that this text says that the reason your life doesn't make sense is because you have not yet come to your senses. And that the reason you feel trapped is because you are in a snare of the devil. And worst of all, you're an opponent. You're an opponent. You're in opposition to the sovereign God of the universe who has all authority. But the good news, very, very good news, is that Jesus Christ knows who are his. And he's brought you here today because of that. You no longer have to be his opponent. You can choose right now to gain sanity and freedom. All you got to do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Call upon his name along with the rest of us here from a pure heart. And you might think, but, but I, 
my heart does not feel pure. I don't have a pure heart at all. Well, good news. Again, it's not your job to make it pure. It's Jesus's job. And all you need to do is ask him. So please don't leave here today without coming to a knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ. Leave here today instead knowing, knowing, knowing that you are his. And church, let's joyfully welcome such new brothers and sisters. For we too were once opponents of Christ, yet he corrected us with gentleness and rescued us from the same snare of the devil. And let's not allow ourselves to get distracted by all the foolish, ignorant controversies or irrelevant babble that is so easily consuming us. Let's stay focused. Let's remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and let's run after him together with all our strength. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that this would be so. Help us to remember Jesus Christ, uh, whether that's five minutes from now when something happens that distracts us, whether that's five hours from now when we feel exhausted or discouraged, whether that's five years from now when we wonder how our life has gotten to the point it is. Whatever the case, Lord, help us to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Lord, we pray that we would run hard and fast, that you would energize us and encourage us to do that. Help us to stay focused. And Lord, if there are any here who don't know you, would you rescue them this morning from the snare of the devil? Would we welcome them as redeemed opponents who shook our fists at you and you opened your arms wide and died on a cross for us? Thank you for hearing us, Lord, and thank you for saving us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.